Wow, that was absolutely stunning and incredible. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, some of you are probably wondering, who is that guy? Uh, My name is Josh Laxton. I work at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. My family and I, we attend Wheaton Bible. We've been doing so ever since we moved last year. And so on occasions, Pastor Rob and Hannibal, they, they graciously allow me to bring the word. And so I am definitely honored to be here and to continue our series, True Identity, where we are walking through the book of Ephesians, learning how believers' identity is rooted in Jesus. Now, if you're like me, at some point this morning, you looked into a mirror. Maybe you looked into the mirror to see how old you were getting. You're like, my goodness, look at all these wrinkles. Or maybe you looked into the mirror to do your hair, brush your teeth. Or maybe you have a full mirror like I do and you make sure that your outfit matches and your shoes match your belt and all of that fine stuff. And so you, you love the mirror, uh, but also you, you probably hate the mirror, right? You, you have this love-hate relationship with the mirror. Like I brought a picture with me today. This is why I love the mirror right here, so that I can take selfies. Uh, it's coming. There it is. So uh, you're like, why in the world did you take that picture? Well, I, I took that picture so that I can send it to my wife, and this was months ago, to make sure that my outfit matched. Uh, you know, I was out of town and I'm like, uh, you know what, I just want to make sure that I look good. And so my wife, she usually makes sure that I look good when I leave the house. So I took that picture and sent it to her. So I, I love the mirror because it gives, a, it gives a good representation. It gives a good reflection of reality. But I have, I have this hate relationship with the mirror too because it does give me all of the abnormalities that I see that I'm like, man, I just don't like what I'm seeing. But let me ask you this. What if the next time you go to look in a mirror, it's shattered? It's like this up here. It's fragmented. It's distorted. You're not going to get a good depiction of reality. You say, Josh, why are you showing all of these selfies and these shattered mirrors and stuff? Because I want to propose to you today that human beings were created to be mirrors. You see, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, when we read that we were created, that human beings were created in the image of God, that we were created in the Imago Dei, what that means is that we were created to be God's image bearers, to be His mirrors that reflected His glory throughout the created order. We were were to reflect His kingdom, His attributes, who He was and is. But the problem is, and we see this in Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve sinned. Well, when they sinned, what happened was, is that they shattered the image of God on their lives. As a result, we are not able to be and do who God created us to be. Now, I want you to be... Clear, I want to be clear that sin did not destroy the Imago Day. We're still very much mirrors. We're just distorted. We're fragmented. We're shattered. But if you go back to Genesis 1, what we actually see 
when God created mankind in his image, we see two elements of the Imago Dei. One element is the ontological element. I know that's a big word, but basically it means nature, or you can look at it as this question, who am I? So when God created mankind in his image, he created them with this, this, this being of connected to him, of who I am, I'm an image bearer. The second element was functional. What do I do? So when you read, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it, that's what image bearers were to do. Because they're connected to God as image bearers, here's how they are to flesh that out in life. So you can think of it this way. Who I am is an identity question. What do I do is an identifier question. So let me give you a formula. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm not a math whiz by any means, so this is more of a sequential formula. you got to get the order right. But who I am, my identity, plus what do I do, my identifier, equals whom or what do I reflect. Now, this is why it's so important for us today, not only culturally, but, but also as the church, we need to understand that we have an image crisis, that mankind has an image crisis, and I'm, and I'm specifically using image on purpose. And as a result of us having an image crisis, it leads to, and it's rooted in this identity crisis, an identifier crisis. Well, let me give you an example. If people don't know who they are, they don't know what they should do, which reflects this distorted image. You see, for many people today in our culture, they don't know who they are. And then there are others in our culture, they actually get this formula wrong because they try to root their identity in what they do. Like, I'm a mom, I'm an athlete, I'm rich, I'm white, I'm bl whatever it might be. They root it in identifiers, which distorts their identity, which reflects this image crisis. And this shattered image, this distorted identity and identifiers plays out in a host of ways. It plays out in image issues, self-esteem issues, sexual brokenness, abortion, relational, behavioral issues, violence, racism, ethnocentrism, nationalism. And you might be wondering, what does this have to do with our series, True Identity, Everything? Because as believers, here's what God is doing. Because... We understand that we are shattered image bearers and that is only in Christ God is making us whole. Therefore, we're going to root our identity in Jesus. And then we're going to have identifiers that flow out of our life with Jesus that gives out this reflection of God's glory to the creation. Why? Because that is who God made us to be and what he made us to do. And what Paul is going to do in this letter is that he's going to make sure that we understand that our identity is in Jesus, which leads to how we live in life, which leads to us reflecting God's glory in the world. And so last week we heard Pastor Rob explain to us Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 about how we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ, and by grace we have been saved through faith. Now he's going to shift, and here is the main point that we're going to flesh out for the remainder of this morning. So if you're ready, say you're ready. 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 Here's the main point. Our new identity in Christ 
means that we will identify with his church. And this is so important for the 21st century church here in America living in such an individualistic age is because when we identify with Jesus, we will identify with his church. So will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? And we will read Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Paul writes these words, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the what? Blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. (laughs) This is awesome. His purpose, what was God's purpose? Was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And so he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and he also preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, may you be pleased this morning. Jesus, as your word is proclaimed and preached... May you go to work shaping and forming your people more into the new creation that you are making them to be. Spirit, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, that we might leave differently than when we came here this morning. For it's in your name we pray, O great God and King. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at three truths regarding identifying with the people of God. And you can think about it this way, that these three truths that that we'll look at this morning answer the following questions. Why we don't identify, how we can identify, and why God wants us to identify. So why we don't, how we can, and why God wants us to identify. Truth number one. The world is comprised of an us versus them division. The world is comprised of an us versus them division. We actually see this in verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and who once were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you're called 
uncircumcised. There, there's the them. By those who call themselves the circumcision, that's the us. So he's making this distinction. Gentiles, you were the them. The Jews, they were the us. And as a result of this us versus them division, here's what Paul says. Remember that at that time, and this is in verse 12, at that time you were separate from Christ. Now, this is interesting. Why is he saying at that time you were separate from Christ? This is even before Christ came as a man. Here's what, here's what he's describing, is that you're separated from Christ. Why? Because you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants of promise, and you were without hope and without God in the world. In other words, you were far away because you were Gentiles. You did not have this privileged position. You did not have special revelation to you given to you by God. You were separate from the people of God. And as such, you were not citizens of the people of God. You actually were foreigners. You weren't part of the covenants of God. So you weren't part of the Abrahamic covenant. You weren't part of the Sinai covenant. You weren't part of the Davidic covenant. And as a result, because you were far away and you were foreigners, you were without hope and you were without God in the world. And so what Paul is wanting the Gentiles to realize is just remember who you were before Christ came into your life. You were not the people of God. You were them, and they thought of themselves as the us. And so given that state and that condition of the Gentiles, it led to this dividing wall, this barrier that the Jews erected because of their special place in God's eyes, because of their privileged position, they allowed that, that privileged position to become very prideful in their lives, and they built up that wall that divided them from the Gentiles. And so therefore, there existed this hostility and this division, this enmity, and this thought of they are our enemies. And so you think about it this way, the type of us versus them relationship that Paul paints here between the Jews and the Gentiles really depicts the kind of relationship human beings have with those that are culturally, racially, ethnically, religiously, and politically different than they. I mean, that's what Paul's describing here. He's describing this macro us versus them. But just on a macro level, we know that that plays out. So let me ask you this question. Why does diversity breed hostility? So why, 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 why does hostility exist between diversity? Well, I got a couple answers. One may be there's not an understanding of the other. Maybe those feel uncomfortable around the other. Maybe people feel threatened by the other. Maybe they fear being changed by the other. Maybe there's this envy or this jealousy of what the other has. Or maybe they feel like the other flaunts or taunts what they have that the others do not. Maybe they feel judged by the others. Maybe they feel inferior to the other. Maybe they have experienced injustice from the other. Or maybe they have been groomed to hate the other. You see, 
the Jews, they looked upon Gentiles with great disdain, seeing them as unclean dogs and pigs that weren't deserving of God's special revelation. But like I said, that macro picture of hostility, it plays out in micro ways. That's why I find John Lennon's song, Imagine, so fascinating. And I'm sure many of you in here know that song. Let me just quote the words to you. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. This is, I mean, it's fascinating that John Lennon would sing a song about imagining a world of, of a brotherhood of man. Imagining a world where there is no divisions. And he says he's not the only one who, who imagines this. But, the, but there's a problem with John Lennon's imagination, humanly speaking. It won't ever happen. You know why? Because there is an image crisis. And because there is an image crisis, it is rooted in this identity crisis and this identifier crisis that mankind has. I'll give you some examples. Samuel Morton, he was a prominent scientist and doctor in the early 1800s, and he was a, he was a skull collector. Uh, I don't know why in the world somebody would want to be a skull collector, but he was. And he believed that people could be divided into five races based upon what he was finding in being this skull collector. And Morton labeled these five races in a hierarchical manner. Number one, he put Caucasians were the superior race. Number two, East Asians. Three, Southeast Asians. Fourth, Native Americans. And fifth, Ethiopians. That is why today Morton is known as the father of scientific racism. He was putting races into class and he was labeling them in a hierarchical manner. But, but he's not the only one. Bill Bishop in his book, The Big Sort, argues how in America people tend to cluster in and around communities of like-minded people, particularly around culture, faith, and politics. And you just take politics, for example, of how divided and hostile we are here in America. But it is interesting that if you go back to the 2016 elections and you put, you, you put the kind of the electoral map up, you'll actually see how divided we are as a nation. And what you'll typically find is around the suburbs and the rural communities, it's all red. But on the coastlines and in major metropolitan cities, it's all blue. We, we just cluster around like-minded people because we feel like it's an us versus them. According to Deborah Simmons, a writer for National Geographic, she says the issue of race is the elephant in the room and you cannot understand 21st century America without exploring the issue of race. But here's what I would dare say and here's what Paul is telling us here is that the problem with John Lennon's imagination is that it does not take into account sin's manifestation. There is an us versus them division that exists between mankind. But there's hope 
Because what Paul's going to move to in verse 13 is he's going to share this truth with us. Is that Christ offers to unite us and them. Christ offers to unite us and them. So verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, this is amazing. So Gentiles, you know you were far away. You were excluded. You did not have the special revelation. But Jesus Christ came and by his blood, you who were once far away, you have been brought near. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss this, though. Because the Jews who were already near to God, given their privileged position and special revelation, still needed to be brought closer. You, you could think of it this way as the story of the prodigal son. The younger son, he flees. He lives licentiously, living it up, Las Vegas. But then he runs home. The father receives him. But who holds this grudge against the father? The older brother. See, the older brother, he was always near to the father, but he had this hard heart because of the father's love. And see, what Paul is saying here is that both the Jews and the Gentiles needed to be brought nearer to God. How do you, how do you know that, Josh? Well, look at verse 17. Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. In other words, both the Jews and the Gentiles had an identity problem, which led to an identifier problem, which showed and manifested the image problem. But, uh, but it's in Jesus and his blood that they're being brought together. Look at, look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. So what is peace? peace? Peace is harmony. Peace is tranquility. Peace is flourishing. So, so Jesus is our flourishing. Jesus is our tranquility. Jesus is our harmony who has made the two groups one. And look at what Jesus did. He destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility. Now this is what I find interesting. Uh, during the time that Paul is writing this, uh, the, I mean a third of the known world was conquered or ruled by the Roman Empire. And that they experienced what people refer to as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But what I find interesting is that this peace across the Roman Empire, where there's no wars and uh, there's no fighting, it wasn't a peace of love and unity. It was a peace of force and domination. But what Paul is describing here about uniting us and them in Jesus is that the cross of Jesus, Jesus' shed blood, don't miss this church, put to death racism, ethnocentrism, elitism, nationalism, and chauvinism. The cross destroyed it. And in destroying such things, Christ replaces hostility and division with peace and harmony and tranquility and love. 
I love the movie Remember the Titans. Any other people out there love Remember the Titans? I cry every time. And I just don't even cry at the end. I cry throughout the movie. And the, 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 the cool thing is it's based upon a true story. And it's based upon 19, 1971. The local, there, there was a local school board in Alexandria, Virginia. And they were forced to integrate an all-black school with an all-white school. And it ignited a firestorm within the community. One of the conflicts, though, that we see in that movie revolved around T.C. Williams' elite football program. And to cause even more intense conflict, the successful white coach, Coach Yost, is replaced by a black coach, Coach Herman Boone. Now, in that movie, there are two sets of characters that I believe depict what it means when an us versus them become one. We see it in Coach Boone and Coach Yost and players Gary Bertier and Julius Campbell. In both sets of characters, they model on and off the field for their team, their school, their colleagues, and their town what it means when an us versus them become one. There's some moving scenes throughout the movie, and I won't give you all of those scenes. I'll give you two in particular. Well, one transpired during the semifinals game when it became apparent that the refs had conspired with the opposing team to see that T.C. Williams lost. Ridiculous and outlandish calls, they were made that night, and so Coach Yost, he was he was kind of aware of what was going on, and it became just even blatant noticeable for everyone. And so Coach Yost, he yells to one of the refs that he knows, and he says, Titus, I know all about it, Titus. You call this game fair, or I'll go to the papers. I don't care if I go down with you, but before God, I swear, I'll see every last one of you thrown in jail. Titus says, dig, dig your own grave. You know what he was saying? Because Coach Yost, he was up for uh, the Hall of Fame. And he was told that if, that if T.C. Williams loses, he would be made the coach. And, I mean, it was a shoe-in for him to become a Hall of Famer. But when he did that, he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his reputation. He sacrificed his Hall of Fame career so that he could stand in the gap. There was another scene in the movie. It was the night that Gary Bertier, one of the star football players, he gets into a bad accident and it leaves him paralyzed and he's in the hospital. And only, only family could be back in the room, but, but Gary wants Julius in the room. So Julius, he comes by, he enters into the hospital room. As he is entering into the room, one of the nurses standing there says, only kinfolk allowed. To which Gary says, Alice, are you blind? Don't you see the family resemblance? You see, they show us, they give us at least a glimpse, a depiction of how it looks for an us and them to become one. But I don't, want us, I don't want us to miss this, though, because it's so important for our culture in America and even our church culture to understand of what becoming one is not. Becoming one is not tolerance or being tolerant. You see, tolerance is putting up with or enduring those you don't like. And see, if you watch the movie Remember the Titans, there's a lot of tolerance going on. They're just tolerating people they don't like. 
And what it seems like today is that tolerance is waning in many circles and it's being given over to outright resentment and hate. But see, Paul is not speaking of tolerance. Listen, you don't tolerate those believers who are different than you. That's not what Paul's getting at. And then also, becoming one is not uniformity. Paul is not saying that we have to lose our cultural identity. As you can tell, I'm from the South. Like, I, I, you know, I'm living in the Midwest, but I, I know that there's kind of, you know, two cultures colliding. You might not even can understand some of the words. I might even get the English language wrong sometimes, which I have been known to do. But that's not what Paul's saying, that we don't lose our cultural identity. He isn't saying that we all have to become exactly the same, that we have to wear the same clothes, eat the same meals, play the same instruments, listen to the same music, like the same dance, root for the same team, or have the same kind of worship service or gathering. And that's one of the, if I could be honest, it's one of the many reasons why my family was drawn to Wheaton Bible Church, that you really are striving to become a multicultural church, even with the various cultural expressions. And I know, and you know, and I know the leaders know, and Paul, he knew that to become a multicultural church for an us versus them to become one, it requires humility, to think less of yourself. It requires accommodation, to adjust your actions in response to someone else's need. It requires patience and sacrifice and selflessness and intentionality and grace and mercy and love and even forgiveness. Don't miss this. At the end of the day, peace and unity isn't something that can be legislated. For peace and unity to occur, hostility and enmity have to be slaughtered. Our nation cannot legislate unity. But because Jesus slaughtered hostility and enmity on the cross, the church can display unity. So we see the us versus them division. Then we see how Christ offers to unite us and them. But the third truth is this. God's mission is to create a we, a new humanity. This is good. Verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Now, I'm a missiologist. My PhD is in missiology. I love missiology. I love studying God's mission. And for years... I've been teaching and I've been trying to ingrain into my children that God is on mission from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God is on mission to create a people for himself. You say, how do you know that? Well, you just see that you see that theme throughout Scripture, Adam and Eve. God's going to create them in his image, put them in the garden. He's going to tell them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Many scholars believe as they were to be fruitful and multiply, living under the rule and reign of God there in the garden, they were to extend the borders of Eden. And as they were fruitful and they multiplied, they would multiply children who were true worshipers of Yahweh, and they would reflect His glory as they lived under the rule and reign 
there in the garden. But we know what happened to Adam and Eve, right? We talked about it at the very beginning. They sinned. They distorted. They shattered the image of God. God kicked them out of the garden. You fast forward, you see in Genesis 10, the table of nations. And then you see the backdrop to that story in Genesis 11, where one people with one voice come together at the Tower of Babel. And they're trying to build this tower so they can make a name for themselves, not God's name, their name. God comes down, confuses their language. So you have all of these tongues, all of these languages now. They, they spread throughout all the world. But what happens in Genesis 12? Genesis 12, God calls a man, a pagan man, by the way, by the name of Abram. And he's like, I'm going to use you, Abram, not because you're special, just because I'm, I'm choosing you. And out of you, Abram, I'm going to make this incredible nation. I'm going to give you a land. We know that land as the promised land. And so God now makes his covenant with Abraham. Now we have the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they come into being. God gives them a land. He gives them the law. He gives them all of these things they are to do in that land, how they are to live. And he also says in Exodus 19 that you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Well, what did a, what did a priest do? They mediated between God and others. So as a nation, the Israelites were to mediate between God and the nations. But here's what we know is that Israel disobeyed God. What did God tell them it, what he would do if they disobeyed? I'm going to kick you out of the promised land. That's exactly what happens. So then you have to fast forward another couple hundred thousands of years, and then you get to Jesus. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Israel. He is God in the flesh, and he has come to make a new covenant, to put a new heart in people. And Jesus walked a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sin of the world, was buried. Three days later, he rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Now, making way for a new humanity. And what does he say? Matthew 28, all authority, all power has been given unto me. Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all Tiethne, all nations. Why? Because he's creating a people for himself. Then you fast forward. So that's, that's the era that we live in right now. But you fast forward to Revelation 21. What do we see? The new city. Jerusalem drops out of heaven, prepared as, and adorned as a bride for a husband. And there we see the description, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. You see, God is on mission to create a people for himself, and we see it right here. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. You see, the church is the third race. It's a third race. It's a new humanity. Now, but this is so incredible. Look at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow, what? Citizens with God's people and also members of his what? Household. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. This is so amazing. Look at now our new standing we're new citizens. Who oversees citizens, particularly in this time that Paul's writing? The king. Well, so who's the, who's the king over the new human race? Jesus. But then he moves on. It's not just citizens, but we're a new family. Well, who's over a family? Father. Who's the father? God the father. And then we are a new dwelling. With a new inhabitant. Who does he say inhabits us? His spirit. Oh, don't miss this. <laughs> you cannot have we without the Trinity. 
You see, it's the Trinity that gives us this perfect reflection of what it means to be one. We reflect the Trinity. And so as I end, Paul's going to give us who the church is and what the church is meant to do. Here in those descriptions... Because I do believe that the 21st century church in America is at a critical point. It's at an identity crisis. They just don't know who they are or what they're to do. Paul gives it to us, and I give them to you real quick, and I'm done. Number one, the church is the people who live under the rule and reign of King Jesus. You want to know what you are to do as a church. You get together with one another, and you learn what it means to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus. You learn to live what it means to live out the life Jesus has for us. Number two, the church is the people who love one another the way the Father has loved us. So no gossip, no slander, people that extend grace and mercy, a people that forgive 70 times 7, a people that loves unconditionally. Why? Because we're part of this new household. We are to love each other the way God loves us. And number three, the church is the people who become the dwelling place of God and who mediate between God and the world. See, he tells us that we are a holy temple, the dwelling place of God. What took place in the temple? Intimacy with God, holiness, because the priest could not go into the temple unless they were holy, unless they were in right standing with God. And then also they went in there to mediate between others and God. For the church today, in becoming the dwelling place of God, the church is the place where people encounter and meet with God. The people... They're the ones who hold each other accountable to be holy as God is holy. And the church is the people who mediate between God and others. We are the salt and light of the world. We mediate between God and those who don't know him. So therefore, the church is much more than a place for corporate worship. It's much more than just attending a Bible study or a small group or serving in some capacity. It is the people who are living under the rule and reign of God, learning what that means, loving one another and holding one another accountable as they are on mission to declare the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you see, it's when we find our identity in Jesus we then identify with this church and we start reflecting the glory of God, that which we were made to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. I do pray that it does not return void and that it does go to work shaping and forming us as your people here and now. Thank you, Jesus, for uniting those who are diverse from different cultures, ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, genders. In you, we're one. May we live out that vision that the world so desperately needs. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.